Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome to the episode on the Holy Quran. Being the month of Ramadan, along with all of the blessings, the virtues, and the aspects of worship that are contained within this holy month, we decided that it was only right, practical, and needed for us to do an episode on the Holy Quran, being the month of the Holy Quran, along with the various ideas of utilization, how to actually approach the Quran when it comes to absorbing all of its contents. And of course, the main idea of today, if someone does not possess the Arabic language, how do they approach the Quran in terms of, you know, using the translations available with the idea of tafsir, what is tafsir, so on and so forth. And with us, um, you know, to join us on this episode and provide to us his vast experience and knowledge on the topic, none other than the uh, tafsir doctor, Dr. Sahib Saeed. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Good to be with you. Hayakallah, it's a pleasure to host you. Um, now, this topic has been something that we've been wanting to address for a very long time. And considering that, you know, we've come into the holy month, we thought that it would just be right to actually address it, you know, during this month. So the first thing that sort of uh, I wanted to do was just give like sort of a brief overview on yourself and sort of some of the points that we're going to be covering today. Um, so, with the actual topic as a whole, um, one of the main things that comes into mind is what is the purpose of the Qur'an? Why was it revealed? And why was it specifically revealed in Arabic? And what does that mean to us when it comes to the idea of recitation, memorization, um, and also contemplation, really attempting to find the meaning that is contained within the Holy Qur'an? And thereafter, when it comes to, you know, the idea of what is translations and sort of what impact do they have? And do they have the ability to actually preserve what's written within the Holy Quran in Arabic, in its original language, along with the academic studies? Um, you know, so we're going to be covering some contemporary issues that involve the debates and polemics amongst both those that, you know, promote this idea of, you know, tafsir should be at a very high level for, you know, the general lay people to actually be able to comprehend, along with those that say that, no, tafsir isn't something for the layman. The Qur'an, you know, for those who do not understand Arabic, it should not be for them. Um, it should be for mere recitation, you know, for the reward, the virtue, so on and so forth. So we're going to be going into all of these details and many more details too. Um, now, just to introduce yourself, Dr. Sahib, um, Dr. Sahib is, you know, someone who has invested heavily and had vast experience in both an institutional setting and an academic studying where he has studied the Holy Quran um, all the way from Al-Azhar University uh, going through to doing his postgraduate studies at Source Universities in London. Um, he's currently based in Glasgow where he does vast projects, research to do with sort of reviving the nature of the Arabic language along with many projects that actually bring the Qur'an back into existence again. Um, and without further ado, Sahib, I wanted to first and foremost begin with, how has your Ramadan been so far? Alhamdulillah, it's been good so far. We're just uh, part way through, of course. Um, and uh, it's always about trying to have some clear goals before you, before you get in there. But uh, I think we often find that uh, it, it, it catches up on us very quickly. Uh, but alhamdulillah, adjusting and uh, and and so far, so far doing doing fairly well. 
with what I wanted. Alhamdulillah, sounds good, inshallah. And one of the first things that always comes to my mind when you know we approach this idea of the Quran is that I guess this would be a very perfect way to start is that what is the purpose of the Quran? Well, that yeah, to not only you know, not only from you know our perspective for someone who maybe has been looking into sort of the, the idea of the Quran, but for the general masses, for the general Muslims every day that just open up the book, what purpose does the actual book serve itself to us today? Yeah, it's very appropriate to be revisiting this, uh, this core question right now in the month of Ramadan. Ramadan, as I like to describe it, is the festival of the Quran. You know, as we, we know, it is a month of fasting. Uh, that's often how we think of Ramadan, you know, first and foremost. But first and foremost, it is the month of the Quran. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala introduces this month or draws attention to this month in the Quran, he says, Shahru Ramadan alladhi unzila fihi al-Quran. So the first thing is that uh, what characterizes the importance of this month is the fact of revelation, right? It is uh, the event of revelation, which is then described in the following ways, Hudan linnas and these are among the, the type of descriptions which, which occur in various ways throughout the entire uh, Qur'an. You, you, would, you would find whenever the Qur'an is mentioned, it is mentioned in the context of its purpose and, and how we relate to that purpose and how we respond uh, to what that obliges us to do right, as human beings. Are we among those who, who follow that purpose or those who, who turn away? Uh, so the first thing here, and, and this is really the core, and, and, and I could almost suffice with this answer, which is to say, it is guidance for all humanity. So guidance means that uh, it is, is taking you from one place to another. It is showing you the way. Uh, you could use all sorts of uh, metaphors here as well based on that. Like to say it is a map. It is... Um, it, it is providing the direction, it is providing the steps that we need in order to get to our destination. Um, as in the Fatiha, as we know, المستقيم, guide us on the straight path. You go to what the Mufassirin explain about it, and many of them are saying it refers to the Quran, or they say it refers to Islam, or they say it refers to, to the, the correct religion. And all of these things really mean the same thing. The Quran provides that for us. And what I'm saying here, you know, because at some points in the discussion we might talk about maybe different perspectives or different emphasis that people place, you know, amongst the Muslims, even amongst scholars or du'at and preachers and so on. But I want to really focus here on what is um, what is shared and agreed and not a single Muslim on the planet would, would dispute this and argue with it, which is that the Qur'an is the central... Um, event first of all the revelation is a central event that that defines what our deen is and where it came from and what it's about you know after allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created all the creation and he created mankind amongst them and he sent messengers and he sent revelation to those messengers and scripture and guidance all throughout history and then we have this final phase of history with the last messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam and a special form of revelation. So the Quran is not the first revelation, but it is. It has uh, special features, including the fact that it is both the message that he brought and the miracle that supports that message. 
whereas in, in other times there have been uh, those two things next to each other, like Musa Islam has got the Torah and then he's got various miracles. Uh, Prophet Muhammad has been given this revelation, which is the proof of its own self. And that makes it also possible for it to be a lasting miracle, not something that uh, was a singular event, like the splitting of the sea, for example, or turning of a staff into uh, a snake, or these kind of things which the people had to witness it at that time. But the Quran becomes something that is witnessed until the end of time, supporting, supporting what? The message that is within it. And the message is the purpose. And the miracle is the support of that purpose. And that's why we shouldn't get the two things mixed up. The fact that the Quran is beautiful is in support of this message, right? Because the beauty of the Quran, how charming its uh, sounds and rhythms are, how beautiful its letters and its even its meanings and expressions and its images, all of these things which make us drawn to recite it and to listen to it, in this month and in other months, all of those things are there so that we keep coming back to the Quran to draw from its guidance. So very simply, the purpose is guidance. The purpose is taking mankind from darkness into light. The purpose is providing a framework for our relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and our relationship with our fellow human being and our place as vicegerents or khulafa here on this earth, knowing how to navigate through this life and how to reach the destination that we need to get to in the hereafter. All of that is the basic maqasid or purposes of the Quran to put us on the path of the messengers. Here in the beginning of the Quran, the, the stage is set for what we are trying to do, we are trying to walk in the way of the messengers and not to be among those who go astray or fall under divine displeasure. Definitely, that sounded very emblematic. And this, I think, really, you know, encompasses everything that sort of we do on a day-to-day -day basis. Because you mentioned, you know, that it is essentially there to serve to us as a guidance. And this for someone today, um, living in the times that we do, facing the challenges and the milestones that exist in accordance to us, you know, being practicing, attempting to fulfill our purpose to Allah Azza wa Jal, um, this raises a very big question. Is that when it comes to our relationship with the Quran as general people around the world today, um, there's sort of three, you know, forms of, uh, you know, the means of how we interact with the Quran, I would say, exist. The first one being you know, mem recitation, um, you know, whenever one has the ability to recite for the reward that is mentioned in the various ahadith. Then the second point would be, you know, those that memorize the Quran, those that teach the Quran, those that, you know, engage in this level of attempting to, you know, take the Quran and, you know, assert it into the soul. And then the third category is those that, want something more than just the recitation, just the memorization, just the teaching, where they want to actually sit down and reflect on the Qur'an. So, in regards to the purpose, it, all, it makes me think that 
I can mem you know mere memorization, mere recitation, ever be really enough to you know reap the fruits that exist within the Quran? And if so, I mean, in what light should we see these three distinctions that exist today? Yeah, it's it's useful to think about these different uh, functions in our uh, engagement with the Quran. Uh, you used the word mere a few times, and it's it's possible for us to. Um, you know, to envision a kind of very stripped-down concept of recitation, which you could call mere recitation, where there is literally nothing else happening. Okay, but I would I would prefer us to to think about how do we make that recitation, you know, tilawa, right? As the, the Quranic expression, you know, tilawati. and that can mean different things. We won't get into, but you know, how do we make our recitation truly recitation? Real tilawa, real qira'a, right? When the Prophet ﷺ is told, iqra, you know, he's told to recite, you know, that is not what we, we are now call, going to call mere recitation. But it, clearly it's something which encompasses um, a tremendous meaning and significance. So recitation, and again, we have uh, all the sort of uh, the... Uh, you know, all the, the, the teachings about how the Qur'an is to be pronounced and then how that's formulated in rules of tajweed. Um, you know, that's all, again, in service of making the recitation beautiful and making it accurate and, and ensuring that we do it and that we transmit the Qur'an in all its grandeur and all its beauty from generation to generation. Now, recitation is the time that you are going to spend with Allah's words, with this divine speech. Uh, when you recite in Arabic, you are connecting with the very words that have been revealed upon the Messenger ﷺ, the very words that were recited by the companions and their followers and so on. So there is something deeply spiritually uh, important about reciting in Arabic, even in the situation where someone doesn't understand Arabic. Okay, but what I want to do is think back to the experience of the Sahaba, even the experience of the Prophet ﷺ himself when he was receiving the Qur'an and he was reciting the Qur'an and he was revising the Qur'an with Jibreel ﷺ, as he would do every Ramadan and as he did twice in the final year of his life on earth, that he would revise with Jibreel the, the Qur'an that had been revealed up to that time. And we know from the, the authentic hadith in Al-Bukhari as well that he would uh, be at his most generous, he would be at his most generous in Ramadan when he was engaging in this process. And people often don't make that connection that perhaps it was the fact that he was spending that time with Jibreel and that time with reciting and rehearsing the Quran that made him and spurred him to be ever more generous, you know, that joy. At, uh, at, at the experience that he was going through with the Qur'an. So recitation is, of course, itself worship. It is dhikr, it is remembrance of Allah. It is uh, the special kind of dhikr where you, are, you have the, the privilege to allow Allah's words to flow from your tongue, where you can worship with your eyes as you look at the page of the Mus'haf and with your mouth and your tongue and even with your hands as you turn its pages. It is no doubt uh, an ibadah, it is a spiritual reality. And that has always been understood to be coupled with, connecting with 
what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying. Now, when we say that that is the experience that must have been the case for the Sahaba, okay, who didn't necessarily use the written page uh, in the way that we do now, but many of them would have really engaged with it in terms of hearing and memorizing and reciting from memory much more than we do now. But the assumption is always that people understood what they were hearing. Okay, but then Islam has spread into new places and there, you know, quite early on, there would have been people who are engaging in the Quran without having uh, the knowledge of Arabic that the Sahaba had. So that's, that's somewhere like we find ourselves now in, in different parts of the world where Arabic is not our first language or maybe uh, many, many Muslims, of course, don't have any knowledge of Arabic. Perhaps they have the opportunity to learn how to pronounce the letters, right? But they don't learn it in terms of uh, its meanings. So in that case, we have this question about uh, reciting for reward, you know, reciting the Quran for reward, as you as you described before, because the assumption is, uh, as as it was, ibadah for the companions to recite the Quran, it is ibadah for anyone else to recite the Quran. Now I cannot uh, deny that that's true, but I also don't want to deny that the purpose of recitation is to be with Allah's words, and those words are conveying meanings. And those words are supposed to have an effect on us. And the purpose, the, the, the maqsood, you know, what lies behind the revelation of the Qur'an was never to create millions of people who will just recite those words. And to them, they are effectively um, letters and sounds and that they would be reverenced and respected as coming from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala without any regard to their meanings. This could never be the situation that is supposed to, that we're supposed to accept, that we're supposed to encourage. Uh, and that's sort of where we are in a lot of communities today, where we, we, we actually set up schools. And I don't say this to attack, you know, the fact of the existence of these schools, but I do say that we need to we need to think carefully about what our priorities are and what what our direction should be. Trying to move from from where we are to um, you know to to where we ought to be, regardless of the the good intentions and also the good achievements that have been that have been achieved through doing this. Uh, we set up schools where people learn how to read the letters of the Quran aloud, and we we, we bring out. Uh, you know, students or graduates from this, hardly with, you know, maybe with zero or, or approaching zero emphasis on what are you reading? What does it mean? And, and how, do you, how do you actually do ibadah through this? To make this clearer, I mean, any kind of dhikr, dhikr at the end of the day uh, is, is understood to be on the tongue and in the heart, right? And those two things go together. But ultimately, the purpose of dhikr is, is, uh, is to engage the heart, right? So the tongue, the tongue is there to recite certain words, whether they're the words of the Qur'an or other uh, words of remembrance, in order to awaken the heart and to get the heart moving in the direction of Allah's worship, to make the heart humble, to make it 
in awe and reverence of Allah and His names and His attributes. All of these things are, are actually dhikr. And we would never say dhikr is just saying words. SubhanAllah, Alhamdulillah. You know, it is the case that some of the scholars said, like uh, like Ibn Ata'illah in his, his hikam, he says it's better for you to be engaged in the um, in the dhikr while being distracted from it. It is better to be in it, you know, still saying the words, but your heart is distracted, than to be not saying it at all, right? Because perhaps that uh, negligence or that ghafla will turn into wakefulness and will turn into consciousness, will turn into humility and meaningfulness, right? So, unfortunately, I think that that is almost the kind of motto that parts of our community have set up is that, well, let's just let's just keep reading the Qur'an aloud and inshallah later on we'll think about how we add to that that people will start to understand the meanings. But we don't see much movement in that direction. We don't see much connection between uh, this, this rote learning method of reciting the, the words aloud and a movement from there towards understanding understanding the words of the Qur'an. I can certainly see that I, having been, having had gone through a school in which the Qur'an was taught, um, where, you know, we had as students the ability to memorize the Qur'an, yet we didn't actually have the ability to understand any of the words, nor is there an ever emphasis on that. So I think that problem that you mentioned, it really does exist, um, particularly to the extent where, I mean, if we're being honest here, most individuals that you know end up finishing the memorization of the Quran or just learning how to recite the Quran in Arabic when Arabic language isn't their first language, nor do they understand the Arabic language. I mean, you know, in all honesty, most of these individuals they will get to a stage where suddenly now, you know, the education system, the secular studies will now have to come and take over. So they don't have the ability to really develop out of just the memorizational aspect or the recitational aspect and actually move on to actually you know delving into the actual words the understanding the meaning so on and so forth so from this perspective i mean how did this problem even start um because i know you mentioned one key word before when we were talking about the companions is the companions whilst it was recited they would understand how do we actually define the word understand when it comes to the companions is it sort of how we would understand when we're just reading a book um or is there something much deeper to that within its meaning and effectively something that has perhaps been lost um you know in the institutionalization of how the quran is being taught today yeah um so there's a few a few points here um the first is that to clarify a little bit about what we mean by the Sahaba understanding, right? So what I'm going to say again, shouldn't be at all a matter of, um, of controversy or disagreement, but I'm just going to put it in a way that maybe people um, don't always put it in this way. The Quran is a communication, right? And uh, the word communication, you could map it to different things that the Quran does describe itself as, okay? Uh, bayan and balagh and uh, all of these different things. But the point is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is speaking to humanity. And uh, it is upon us to, to listen 
to what he is saying and to respond. You're saying to me, Ya Rabb, what are you saying to me? I will, I will uh, take that and I will take heed and I will follow and I will submit. That is, that is what they were doing. They would hear something and they would submit and they would follow and they would implement. Uh, that was natural because they were hearing words that meant something to them and they understood that they were being asked to do certain obligations, whether they be obligations of the limbs or obligations of the heart, obligations in their wealth, in their family, uh, putting their lives on the line in, in, in defense of the message. So the Qur'an had this powerful effect. It had this effect first upon the messenger himself, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. You know this... Uh, this thing that people say about um, the Prophet Jesus is mentioned 25 times in the Quran and Prophet Muhammad وسلم, is mentioned four times in the Quran, meaning by name. Uh, what, they, what they miss is that the Quran throughout is an address and a kind of uh, discourse or even a conversation with the Messenger وسلم, you know, who's receiving it. You know, just about any page you could find pronouns which are speaking to the Prophet you know. Uh, you know, he has not abandoned you or become angry, right? So, your Lord. And it's speaking to the Prophet So, we have to understand that the Qur'an had an impact by communication. Allah is speaking and the people are hearing. And they are taking it on board. So when you put it in that way, it becomes very strange for us to then treat the Qur'an as something other than a communication. And to strip it from that, that aspect of it, if I can even call it an aspect. You know, it, here's the thing that in some of the discussions that I've had with people about um, meaning and recitation and, and things like that, they say, Yes, recitation is important. Of course, we, sorry. They say, of course, the meaning is important, right? They will always say, I'm not denying that the meaning is important. But what they, what they, they're just never going far enough when they say that. The meaning is not just important. The meaning is really, it is it. It is everything. If we take away meaning, you are not describing the Quran anymore. You are, you are, you're describing you know, the, the, the form of the Qur'an, right? As if we could say to people, here, take a mushaf, you know, and here it's between two covers, take this and put it in your home. And then we could say, well, they've got the Qur'an, right? Yeah, in a way they've got the Qur'an, but what you're saying, they've got a physical copy of the Qur'an, which is in pages and paper and it's between two covers and they put it on their shelf or they put it on their desk or they hold it to their chest. It makes no difference. It is only the physical form the written form of the Qur'an. Recitation is also, the, the, in a sense, the audio form of the Qur'an. It is still the form and not the substance. It is not the, it is not the, the inner reality of what the Qur'an is. The, the reality of what the Qur'an is is the communication of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to his, to his servants. So I think it's important. Because yeah. just, just in the back end of that, yeah. um, most people today, um, generally speaking, they will find some level of spirituality or find some level of, you know, deeper relationship with the Qur'an 
by maybe listening to their favorite Qadi recites in a specific, uh, you know, Qiraat. Or perhaps, you know, there'll be at times where they will go through some level of darkness in their life and maybe go home, just open up the Qur'an and start reciting. So effectively what you're saying is that when it comes to the communication aspect of the Qur'an, this is the most pivotal, you know, part of the Qur'an or the purpose of the Qur'an, you could say. Am I correct in saying that? Yes, and at the same time, I don't want to take away from people what they already have, you know, that reverence and that all. You know, there are other ways that one can connect uh, through the Qur'an. Let's say a person is just listening to it and saying, هَذَا كَلَامُ رَبِّي Right? This is this is the speech of my Lord, and they feel a spiritual meaning from that. Okay, so I'm I, I don't want to take away from that at all. Listening to their favorite reciter, I mean, again, I don't want to stop people doing that, but just even think about the way that you just explained that. You know, does it have to be through their favorite reciter? Right. So, is it really about the words that are being recited, or is it about the person and the voice? of the reciter, of the individual reciter. And if one reciter would have that effect on you and another skillful reciter does not have that effect on you with the same ayah, it means that it's not truly the ayah that you have connected with in this situation. I know that's uncomfortable to say and might upset people. My purpose is not to upset people or to blame people. But it's it's uh, what I'm saying is we should be a bit conscious with ourselves, we should question ourselves. You know, what is it that I love here? You know, when people say this, you know, I, I'm, I've myself been involved and continue to be involved in promoting the art of recitation of the Quran. That's the thing. Some people may misunderstand me to be, to be against this. I'm not. Um, you can look up uh, Quranica, some of my projects that have been going on in this particular regard and continue to go on. I love the Egyptian uh, style of recitation and, uh, at the same time, I, I have some, uh, you know, reservations about sometimes the way people behave in this performative recitation and how, you know, sometimes you see that uh, a qari could be reciting an, uh, an ayah of, of adab and punishment and torment, but he recited it in such a charming way. And then you see people in the audience laughing and, uh, and, and slapping each other on the back because they enjoyed it so much. And then they come, yeah. They, 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 you know, they shout and they come and hug and kiss the reciter. Oh, you did so great. You did so well. And if they were, if they were at all paying attention to what, what Allah is saying, they would be on the ground weeping instead of that. Right? So I, I just don't, I, I cannot say that it is necessarily praiseworthy that people are responding to the Quran when at the same time what they're responding to is the reciter or the sound or the maqam. Okay? And I'm not actually against maqamat uh, in recitation. I'm not against that, but, I, but I, I think we have to be alert and we have to be critical about the way these things are used and, and where, where a person is really uh, deriving that feeling from and, and try to improve on that situation. Because that's the important thing that I really want to emphasize here. I don't want to be understood as, um, you know, really in a sense attacking individuals or, or making people feel uh, a sense of failure as an individual Muslim or Muslim are listening, that you are not doing good enough, you're not reflecting the Quran, you haven't learned Arabic, why are you not? I'm not saying this 
as an individual level, but exactly as you uh, mentioned in your, your, your question a few minutes ago, is how did this happen on an institutional level? That is really the, the crux of where I would like to direct my message, is that we really cannot blame individuals for not learning Arabic if collectively we have not created the environment and the resources and the encouragement to do so. Now, some resources exist, right? It's, it's certainly possible for anyone to go and learn Arabic now. We cannot deny that. Um, but at the same time, it's not sort of available to everyone. It's not done in a way that is captivating enough for everyone, uh, that's affordable enough for everyone, right? Um, we, we, have a, we have a certain way to go. And it's not just about the resources existing, but it's about creating the impetus for people to feel, yeah, of course, the natural thing for me to do is to learn enough Arabic. And I don't want to make it all about Arabic, by the way, because we will talk in a moment about, about what we might mean by Quranic literacy. But let, let's take Arabic as an example or a part of that. You know, how, how do we create in people the feeling that, yeah, of course, it's natural for me to do that. It's not only a certain class of people who are going to think of themselves as tulab al-ilm, you know, seekers, or, or this, this strange phrase we have, students of knowledge, right? Who, who are going to then do that. But every Muslim would feel, yeah, of course, I, I, I want to engage with the Quran and I'm going to, I'm going to follow the path that takes me more, uh, ever more into being able to do so and takes me to, to higher levels and, and you know, instead of a situation where, as a culture, and of course there are various cultures, I'm speaking about the ones that I that I know about in a sense, uh, we create a culture where we, we tell people that learning Quran means learning how to recite it aloud. I mean, I was having this discussion with one of my one of my students who is who's also you know a Quran teacher and he teaches kids, and uh, someone had had a word with him and. About the hadith of The best of you is those who uh, learn the Quran and teach it. And and someone has said to him, actually, this doesn't just mean teaching the you know the qaida and teaching how to read aloud. It means teaching the meaning and message of the Quran. So he came to me quite upset <laughs> about this uh, because he, he said, you know, I always felt that I was covered by this hadith. You know, I was sorted. And I said, no, to be honest, the person, the person who said this to you is right. Um, by all means, yeah, teaching how to recite the Qur'an aloud is part of teaching the Qur'an. But, you know, we can't limit the hadith to that meaning. Or even to make that the most prominent meaning of that hadith, that the most important thing we have to teach people is how to read the Qur'an aloud from a page. It cannot be, like, logically, it just cannot be that that is the primary signification of the hadith or what makes people the best you know khayrukum, how how grand it is to be the best of all the muslims are the ones who, who who are teaching how to read aloud from the page it can't be like this but it's people who are who are transmitting that you know who are communicating allah's communication with people sharing that guidance with people helping them to understand the relevance of that message to them and how they can adjust their lives and their behavior and their hearts to gravitate them more to the message and the purpose that the Quran is leading them to. And this is one of the topics that we're really going to be discussing um, you know, very, very soon within the podcast, 
where we speak about sort of the decline and sort of the mischaracterization of the Qur'an's utility when we resort to various ahadith that sort of limit the Qur'an. And one of the things that we were discussing uh, before the podcast was, you know, the tafsir regarding, you know, the ayah, mm. where the specific word ummiyun, I mean, if we were to take all of these hadith that speak about teaching, memori- sorry, teaching, memorizing, and reciting, if we want to really dig deep and, you know, build an understanding of what these hadith actually mean, you know, when I came across the tafsir of Qatada and Ibn Abbas and Ibn Taymiyyah on this specific verse, on just the word ummiyun, illiterate, you know, today as a civilization, we consider ourselves as one of the most literate of, you know, human history. And yet, you know, on that same, you know, idea of literacy, mm. there seems to be this level of illiteracy when it comes to the Qur'an, when it comes to matters of the religion, when it comes to matters that define our purpose. Um, so when Allah says that do they not reflect on the ayat of Qur'an, or is there a locks upon their hearts? Is there a seed upon their hearts? I remember one of the you know khutbas that you uh, delivered. Uh, I think maybe it was a few years mm. ago, where you specifically spoke about you know this ayah along with other ayahs too, and it was really on the focus of Ramadan and this idea of you know when Muslims go they gather into taraweeh. And I mean this is a great thing and this is a great virtue within itself. However, should the Qur'an just be limited to, you know, you know, completing one khatam, as an example, from, you know, from the beginning of the month to the end of the month, should it just be limited to us going for taraweeh and then going back home? I think that's sort of it. I mean, how does understanding really tie in and integrate into this idea of you know, reflecting and understanding just as the companions would understand. Because, you know, we have loads of reports from the companions. Essentially, we want to follow the way of the companions of Rasulullah And some of the reports that we have is where the companions would not move on to memorizing another verse, like Ibn Umar as an example, until they had fully explored the, you know, the verse that was in front of them, both in, you know, recitation both is understanding and both in in acting upon it. So when it comes to Ramadan and this idea of taraweeh, this idea of finishing, you know, the Quran once, I mean, where do we even start? Yeah, that's that's interesting because again, it comes back to what I indicated about culture, right? So we create a certain pattern of behavior which we set up as a culture and a community, right? So taraweeh, since uh, the time of the companions, has been part of Islamic culture, right? And I know sometimes people see culture as a bad word, but, but I'm not using it in that way. I'm saying the patterns of behavior that, we, that, that, that become normal for people, right? So we do certain things, and I live in Scotland, and we're quite, uh, quite north in, 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 in this world, and our days are, are quite exceedingly long. Um, around 20 hours is the, is the fast um, at the moment. So we have a very short night, uh, but there are certain things that 
as a community, we will not see people uh, budging on at all, right? So you've got to have the taraweeh. It's got to be 20 rakahs, you know, most of the time. I mean, for most of the mosques, it's like that. And then, non-negotiably, the Qur'an must be recited in full throughout this month. And also, you know, in a lot of places, it's a case of, but it's also got to be done really quickly because, you know, we don't have much time and people need to get a bit of rest and they need to get to work and valid concerns, right? But something's got to give, you know, you can't, you can't have all these competing concerns and then still have something coherent as, a, as an end result. So what often happens, uh, and this will be familiar to many people, is that you have a very fast-paced recitation where even um, letters are being, you know, uh, almost missed from the recitation. And you've seen the, the funny examples that people share, you know, on, on, of these videos from, from certain places where uh, they call it Imam Ferrari or Qari Ferrari, whatever. A person is going at such a pace that, you know, you, you have to really question, and I know this, again, could upset people, but you have to question, is, is, is what we're doing in this situation, is it pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Are we actually... Are we respecting the Qur'an, which is what we set out to do, right? Are we actually respecting the Qur'an when we're doing it at this you know, extreme pace? Um, when people are, are, are putting themselves through all the effort, investing that, uh, that care and attention in attending these salawat, right? What are they leaving with? Now, I know many people could tell me that they, they do find that spiritual experience, maybe without understanding anything. That's... And I don't want to take that away from them. But I just, I can't compare that with a situation where people are hearing the words of Allah and they're hearing that communication and they're being affected by it. And, and, and my point here is really, we have to create in people this sense of imagination. Like, imagine if, like, what it's like to actually have a meaningful engagement with the Qur'an but because for many people that is just so, it seems so out of reach, they would not be willing to, to, to they, they don't know where to start, right? And, and that's where I'm saying it's an institutional problem, right? I can't blame um, just, you know, people around me and say, well, you, you know, you should, you should be desperate to learn Arabic and desperate to, you know, I can't say it's their fault that they're not, it's, it's a case of how do we create a situation where people understand, wow, it's possible to actually be so moved by the Quran. You know, is it possible that that I that, that I could actually? First of all, they don't they don't know what is the value in in the Quran, right? We all believe it and we all say it. The Quran is full of guidance. It is guidance for you know uh, until the day of judgment. It is a miracle. It is it is beauty. It is impact and power. All of these things we. We would all affirm, but for many of us, it is just really a statement. You know, until until you are given the opportunity to see what that means and feel what that means, when you do, I promise you, you will you will realize that you know you wouldn't want to waste your time with other things. <laughs> you know, it would be a case of this is like the singular, this is the singular thing that I want to achieve is to is to be close to Allah's words in the Quran. Uh, but we, we need more people who can actually, you know, who can convey that message, who can, who can convince people of it in a practical way. Um, I, want to, I want to come back to a word that you mentioned about literacy or, you know, you mentioned the possibility of illiteracy, that maybe there are people 
according to you know some interpretations of the ayah that you mentioned, there are people who 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 are reading the book, but they are still in a sense illiterate. You know, I think that the um, the word literacy is a, is a very powerful one, a very useful one. Um, even though I'm not quite sure what uh, what we want to call this in Arabic, I need to think about it some more. But in English, the word literacy is a very useful term uh, because you know there are different types of literacy and there are different levels of literacy. Um, so, so I, I want to flesh this idea out a bit more uh, later on. But for now, you know, for this podcast, I'll give a basic idea about what Quranic literacy can mean. Because I've seen, again, some people treat the word Quranic literacy as if it refers, again, to being able to read aloud from a page. Uh, reading aloud from a page could be, could be designated as the first step in gaining literacy of the Quran. But you know what? It doesn't have to be. Uh, learning to read the, the Arabic letters and words and sentences and ayat, you know, that could come later. It does not have to be the first thing that you learn or the first way that you engage in your journey of Quranic literacy, right? In fact, it, it could be absent altogether and a person could still have a meaningful relationship with the Quran. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to take us away from <laughs> teaching people how to read in Arabic, okay? But... I'm saying that it is not the, the, you know, I've seen this mistake made really in, 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 in circles of, of uh, new Muslims or converts, you know, where among the first things you teach them is here, here's how we're going to read the Arabic alphabet. I don't really understand why that is, is placed there in the, in the beginning in terms of priorities. Now, um, basic meanings of the Quran is, is, is important. Okay, being able to, to read the Quran for most people, this will need a, a translation. You know, and, we, and we need to stop treating translations like they're something, uh, like some kind of, um, uh, sometimes people treat it as a problem because they say, you know, the Quran can't be translated. Of course, it, can, it can't be translated in a way that removes the need for the original. Right? There's, no, there's never going to be a perfect translation for many, many reasons. But... Still, you know, fairly decent translations exist. You can read in translation. And instead of treating that as a, even as a necessary evil, let's treat it as a virtue. Let's, let's encourage the practice of reading translations. And at the same time, let's improve people's literacy in reading translations. Recently, I, I had a meeting with somebody who's just published a new translation of the Quran. And he is also someone who runs... Uh, uh, like Islamic schools, so I, I I probed him to be honest a little bit, maybe a little bit hard, and I, I I probed him to see you know what do you understand about people's reading practices with your translation or with other people's translations with the Quran in general, right? Until we understand this, we won't know how to take the relevant steps, right? Do we need a new translation because we have dozens and dozens of them already? Uh, is is this the need of the time? Is another translation? Are people even reading books at all? Do people spend the time and sit down and read books? Some people do, but I think it's less and less people. Right? People have gravitated and moved towards where their eyes are directed is mostly to their phones now, right? So how do we deal with that fact? Right? How do we shift our behaviors accordingly? Do we have to pull them away from those phones to get them to the mushaf? Or do we 
or do we create content that's going to be accessible on their phone, right? Uh, that, that's an open question, but I'm saying until we know the situation that we're dealing with, we would not have an answer. So I, I was saying to him that, you know, I, I think it's very possible that people would sit and read a translation and they would misunderstand certain things, right? So, so uh, like, how do we also teach people to read translations correctly or to understand what they're reading in English or in whatever language? I, I think that's a point that, that has been completely neglected, right? Nobody talks about how to read translations correctly and effectively. Um, then we've got um, the content of surahs. Okay, uh, isn't it strange in a way um, if you were to, to speak to an average Muslim or maybe even a, a quite a lot above average Muslim and you said to him, you know Surat Shu'ara, uh, what's that about? Right? Now, I'm not saying like, uh, do they know the, the list of the maqasid of the surah or, uh, or have they memorized the surah? No like a basic familiarity with what's in the Qur'an. Again, I'm not saying this to make people feel bad about themselves. I'm saying, how is it that we, how is it that we, we don't do that? How is, it that we're, how is it possible that Muslims would barely know what's in the Qur'an? Right? Isn't, isn't it really strange when you, when, you just take a step, when you just take a step back and look at us as a community and say, like, how is, you know, it's not the fault of the people who grew up without being taught that. It's a collective uh, failing, I would say, um, to, 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 de to deal with, this, with, the, with the Qur'an in this way, that people, everyone should know what Surah Al-Shu'ara is about. If they're lucky, they'll know that the word Shu'ara means poets. And they, well, maybe it's about poets, right? A tiny bit at the end is about poets. Um, but, but mostly it's about Anbiya, right? Ankabut, or it's about spiders, right? So the point is, like, how do you, how do we create this level of literacy that everyone should be able to say, oh, this surah contains uh, the, the following, and they might mention one or two prominent things that happen in that surah, right? Bare minimum. Let's say uh, context. People are going to read the Quran. Uh, they need some grasp of what it's talking about, what's the background. You know, and that includes things like Sabab Nuzul or includes things like the, the surah context or how it connects to other things in the Quran elsewhere, other surahs. Um, translations um, often don't, uh, don't provide that. So again, there's a, there's a possibility for people to misunderstand. And here's where, where I think that the, those people are coming from. You mentioned earlier on that there are people who you know, preachers even, or scholars who seem to discourage people from reading the Qur'an. Needless to say, I'm, I'm, I'm completely opposed to that mindset. But I think it is important to, 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 to understand where people are coming from, even if you don't agree. Um, the idea is that the Qur'an can be misunderstood if people don't have access to uh, the interpretations and the context and, and the, the sound um, rulings that have been deliberated by the scholars, the Mufassirin and the Fuqaha and so on. So they're worried that people will read the Qur'an and because the Qur'an is the highest authority, they will take their misunderstanding of the Qur'an as the highest authority over the authentic rulings of the scholars. The solution to that, my, my, 
my friends and my beloved brothers and sisters, the solution to that is not to stop people reading the Quran. Something else has to be the solution, right? This is the challenge I'm putting out there about developing Quranic literacy. It can, we cannot make the solution to say to people, don't read the Quran without a scholar. And then, and then we're going to say that, and then the scholars themselves are not going to read the Quran with people. And the scholars themselves are, are distracted from the Quran with everything else. <laughs> the scholars themselves, very few of them are specialists in tafsir. Uh, very few of them have a really thorough engagement with the Quran. And that shows, that shows in the way that they talk. And this is, the, this is where the truth gets more, more bitter and, and, and more problematic. And hopefully our audience can handle this. This is the problem. The scholars themselves have, uh, in many, many cases, maybe the majority of cases, have a serious disconnect with the Quran in the sense that I'm talking about it. Uh, the, the level of literacy in tafsir, in the programs that people study, is very minimal. Uh, to study the Jalalain, you know, people think that, you know, we study the Jalalain from cover to cover. Yeah, that's very minimal, very minimal as a program for studying tafsir. You know, are, are you not... And then people themselves become scholars and then they consider themselves to be now authorities. But their grasp of how the Qur'an has been engaged by our tradition of mufassirin is very basic. And what's worse is that they don't know how basic it is. Because again, the imagination is not there. They, they don't know what it's like to specialize in tafsir or what that involves. That's where, you know, uh, um, you know I, I, I took the unusual route, as you mentioned before, that I studied at Al-Azhar. You know, I, I was one of the very few people who decided uh, to study in Usul al-Din. First of all, this is the kulliya or the, the, the faculty that, uh, that I chose to study in. And then specifically in the department of tafsir. Um, and I had one friend with me who was from the U.S., Apart from that, I've, I've not known anyone subsequently who, who, who chose that specific department from among Western Azharis. Maybe there are others that I'm not aware of. But the point is, the prestigious faculties are Sharia. You know, you study Fiqh and Usul al-Fiqh. And the assumption is that you're going to become um, a Faqih. You're going to become a Mufti. And, and the argument that many of my friends made is, this is what people need. People need Fiqh. Right, and and I can't I can't fault the, the the claim that people need fiqh, and people are going to ask about fiqh, uh, and I can't fault the claim that people hardly ask about the Quran. I don't I, I'm I'm not inundated with questions about tafsir honestly, but but that itself is part of the problem. Why are people not asking about the Quran? It's because they're not reading the Quran, or they're not reading it in a way that they're engaging their minds in it, and questions come to mind that they have to ask. So that's not okay, right? So we need, we need some people and we need more people to actually specialize in the sciences of the Quran, in tafsir and understanding what tafsir is, in grasping the tradition of tafsir and in grasping also the need for ongoing tafsir and a living, renewed tradition of tafsir as well. Uh, and, and that's where, and that's where it's, it's at the moment quite a lonely, Quite a lonely thing that I'm saying, but there are definitely like-minded people 
um, with whom I'm trying to work uh, together to you know to to make moves in this direction, inshallah. You you mentioned that sometimes we just need to step back and sort of see the situation of man and his relationship to the Quran. And one verse that comes, you know, that I mentioned before, that really comes into mind that you can almost envision, is when Allah says, uh, mm. Now, I would like to, you know, really take one point from yourself, is that someone may argue, as you rightfully mentioned, is that this verse is speaking to the scholars, right? It's not speaking to the lay people and so on and so forth. What would be a response to this? And how do we really understand, you know, the Qur'an giving us the, you know, diagnosis and giving us the cure at the same time? Mm-hmm. Well, so, so the, the argument would be, who is, it, who is it that's supposed to do tadabbur or reflection and deep pondering on the Qur'an? You know, funnily enough, the, the ayah that you mentioned, the Surah Muhammad, it is actually addressed, uh, it is referring to the unbelievers or to the hypocrites. Right? Do they not ponder on the Qur'an? So, tadabbur there has a meaning of examining the Qur'an, the phenomenon and you know, what the Qur'an is. Do they not consider with care that this is something that could not be from other than Allah? You know, because this, the similar ayah in Surah An-Nisa says, uh, If it had been from any other than Allah, they would have found much inconsistency therein. And here, um, it is like, a kind of it, it is a, it's a criticism. It is pointing out the fundamental problem, which is so difficult to translate, by the way, because uh, or are there upon hearts their locks? That would be a literal kind of translation. What it indicates is that there are different hearts out there, maybe different kinds of hearts, and each kind of heart has got its own kind of lock. So. In the first place, the unbelievers have got the, the qufl, quflul kufr, right? <laughs> the lock of, of unbelief. Uh, and the qufl, uh, in many people, is, it, it is arrogance, right? They are too arrogant and too haughty to consider uh, reading the Qur'an or listening to the Qur'an to the extent they were sticking cotton in their ears and this kind of nonsense to, to avoid hearing the Qur'an. Now, can we extend this and say, even for believers, there are locks upon the heart? There could be different types of lock, right? Or the lock can be seen as a kind of, uh, like a barrier or an obstacle that we have to overcome. And for many of us, that lock, to be honest, is, is the language barrier, right? So if we, don't, if we don't have a grasp, a basic grasp of the language of the Qur'an, then this is a lock. Uh, not a lock that is a sinful lock, but a lock that is something that we have to uh, find the key to open. And uh, this is something that I always like to, to point out. Uh, the Qur'an does not describe itself as locked, right? Because we get these courses and so on that say, unlocking the Qur'an, you know, or decoding the Qur'an. You know, first of all, the Qur'an is not a code, okay? Secondly, it is not locked, okay? It is an open book. The locks are upon the hearts, not upon the Qur'an. So if you're going to make a course called Unlocking, call it Unlocking Ourselves for the Qur'an, right? Because that's where the, the barrier lies within ourselves, right? The shortcoming is in ourselves, not in the Qur'an. So why, why is the double for everyone? Well, let's take an ayah that is more direct in that regard. Kitabun anzalnahu ilayka mubarakun 
ليتدبروا آياته وليتذكر أولو الألباب in Surah Sad. Right? It is a book which we have sent down to you, O Muhammad Sallallahu full of blessings that they may ponder ليتدبروا آياته ponder upon its signs or its verses and that the people of intelligence would take heed and would remember. So it is for everyone. It is for everyone. It is not Tadabbur is not a specialist activity for the scholars. Tafsir is a specialist activity for the scholars. Now, what is exactly the difference in Tafsir and Tadabbur might take a, a, a more lengthy exploration. And to be honest, I'm still trying to figure out how to answer this question uh, properly because there is Tadabbur for the scholars, right? And the Mufassireen are doing Tadabbur, right? So the scholars of Tafsir are also pondering upon the Qur'an, but they're pondering in their level, in their way, according to the things that they're able to question and the things that they're able to answer. But that's what each of us has to do according to our own uh, ability, according to our own position, according to our own needs. So tadabbur, first and foremost, means that we would listen to what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying and we would um, think about how this applies to me, okay, and what is it that I am being asked to do, and how will I, how will I apply this to the situations that that I find in my own life, and and I would link this to um, uh, another expression that I'd like to share with people, which is uh, meaning what you say, right? Meaning what you say when you recite the Quran, and let's let, let's use as the, the most important example of this, Surah Al-Fatiha. Okay, Surah Al-Fatiha is of course uh, uh, a kind of dua or supplication which Allah has provided us from His grace and His bounty, that He has given us the words to say, to express our praise and our gratitude to Him, and to re reaffirm our covenant of servanthood with Him, to establish the covenant of Lordship upon us to ask him for guidance upon the straight path and to walk in the way of the righteous. So these words have been given to us, but we are surely supposed to, when we stand in our salah, when we say, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim, Maliki Yawmiddin, Iyaka Na'budu wa Iyaka Nasta'een. As we say the surah, surely we are supposed to mean what we are saying. And I'm going to clarify that um, in the following way. At the beginning of the surah, we have uh, verses of praise. And in the famous uh, hadith, authentic hadith as well, that uh, hadith Qudsi, where uh, the Prophet ﷺ told us that, uh, when, uh, that when the servant says, that, sorry, in the beginning of the hadith, Allah says, I have divided the salah, which means here the fatiha, into two, you know, between me and my servant into two halves. And my servant will have whatever he or she asks for. Right? So the, the two halves, as they say, is the beginning of the surah, which is all about directing our servanthood and servitude and worship towards the Lord. And the second half is where we are asking something from the Lord. Right? So when we go from now we are asking something from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then إِهْدِنَا الْمُسْتَقِيمِ And what's so beautiful about this hadith is um, the Prophet ﷺ describes 
how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala responds to the individual things that the servant is saying. So when he says, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, which incidentally in this hadith is treated as the first ayah of the Fatiha, so, so Hanafis uh, use this as a proof uh, for their, for their uh, position. Anyway, so when the servant says, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, Allah says, you know, my servant has praised me. So here's the question. If you just say Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen and you have no idea what you're saying, have you praised Allah? I wouldn't say so. You praised Allah by saying those words and meaning them on some level. Okay? Now, how do you mean Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen? I'm sure every one of us has said these words at various points in our lives and really meant it. Okay, think about an exam that you thought you were going to fail and you got a great result or some blessing that came to you or some uh, disaster that was averted from you and you said, Alhamdulillah, and you meant it and you felt at that point, I really need Allah and I'm really dependent upon His mercy and His grace. So we all know how to say it and mean it but then for some reason that might not be activated when we stand for prayer, right? Rabbil uh, Alameen, you know, the more that we know about the Rabb and what it means for him to be Rabb, the more that we know about Alameen, the worlds and even the whole universe and the, the vastness of it and the intricacy of it and the beauty of it and the balance within it, the more that we know about that, and these are also the sciences, right? The physical sciences, the more that we would appreciate what it means to be Rabbul Alameen and the more that we would mean what we say when we say Alhamdulillah Rabbul Alameen Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim the more that we reflect upon his mercy and the, the effects of that mercy upon us as individuals, in our families, in our societies the more that we would mean what we say when we say Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim Maliki Yawmiddin the more that we reflect upon what is told to us about the events of the Day of Judgment and all that will happen there and understanding that Allah is watching and He's accounting. The more that we appreciate these meanings, right? So first of all, knowing what we are saying, the more that we're able to mean what we are saying. And that becomes all the more crucial when we move past this part of the, of the surah and we come to Now we're saying, you alone we worship and you alone we ask for help. Now, what a difference there is between someone who says that as words, okay? Even as I, I won't absolve myself of this uh, this problem. By the way, I know what I know what it means, but yes, yeah, sometimes I might be standing in prayer and I'm ghafil, you know, from what I'm saying. Yeah, can I do? I'm just trying to get get through the surah, trying to get through the rakah, get through the prayer. We 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 all know what I'm what I'm talking about here, right? It's almost, uh, you know, an element of gaining consciousness when you're actually reading the Fatiha, right? Consciousness, yes, absolutely. Consciousness is a great word. And, uh, and, and being someone who is saying it meaningfully. Okay, the words have meaning. But the point is, in the Fatiha especially, and you can apply this throughout the Quran, by the way, but in some places it is, it is more directly uh, important as it is here in the Fatiha. Because... Now we are saying in the first person, I, we only worship you. Now you can either just say that or you can mean it. 
right? And there's such a big difference between saying you alone we worship while perhaps worshiping others, okay? And it's not necessarily here I'm talking about idolatry, but that we are distracted by, by other concerns other than Allah. So we can say it while, while essentially uh, speaking an untruth when it comes to our own selves, okay? And if we are saying, and then we feel in ourselves, wow, is that really true about me as I say this? We would feel the weight of these words that we are saying. We would still say them because we were commanded to. But we would say, subhanAllah, I need to do something about the disconnect between what I'm saying and what I'm living. Do you see that? You know, it's no joke to say, like understanding the Quran is not something that, you know, inshallah one day, I'm just going to keep reciting it now and then one day I will, you know, it would be ideal to understand it, just that it's an ideal. But it's not just an ideal. It is really, you know, without that, we are we're completely missing the effect of the Quran upon our lives or of the salah as well. In the salah tanha anil fahsha'i wal munkar. Indeed, the salah prevents and forbids from immorality and wrongdoing. So when a person says, we should be asking ourselves, is that true? Then if, if, if there's a, a shortcoming here in my, in, in in the oneness of my worship of Allah, in the reality of my Tawheed as enacted in my life, then I must you know, humble myself before Allah in this Salah. And when I leave this Salah, I must make some change. Imagine you had that thought, you know, 17 times minimum every day. Now, now it's a dua, right? Uh, right, so uh, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala hears it, He says, This is for my servant. My servant will have what he or she asks for. What a difference there is between saying, and actually asking Allah to guide us on the straight path. The second one is meaningful, right? So, making dua, it just, it's, it's quite easy to understand if, you, you know, if one person has, uh, has memorized some words of dua and says them. Uh, oh Allah, give me success in my exam and give me, give me the answers to all the questions and let me be at the top of my class. Imagine they just said those words and they don't know what they mean. Is that the same as someone saying, oh Allah, I'm in need of you. I have none beside you. I have no knowledge except what you make easy for me. Right? A person might be not eloquent at all. They might have only the meaning they might not have the eloquence of the words but which of them really let's be honest let's be straightforward which of them is is the successful dua the eloquent words which a person might not even understand but certainly doesn't mean or words which are very basic but a person means it from the core of their heart so this is this is all part of engaging with the quran is is to is to is to realize that we, we we when we speak the words of the Quran, we are being heard, and that has an impact on our relationship with Allah. It has an impact upon our our hearts and our character and our life. And for many Muslims today, um, you know, not having the Arabic language, not having you know developed their understanding in Arabic and developing their understanding of the Quran. Uh, just like the problem that we spoke about at an institutional level just before, 
um, the question might be, okay, now that I don't have Arabic, and it's not a process that will just come overnight to our wake up and I'll be able to suddenly start reading and understanding the Quran. There is a need and a necessity for, you know, them to take translations so far as to until they can come to the point where, okay, now I can actually open up the Quran and reflect on it directly. So my question would be is that, is there specific translations that you would recommend? And most importantly, you know, how does this relationship with the Qur'an through the use of the translations, through the use of the English language and what is available in text for us to actually form this level of tabaddu, I mean, how can it be utilised to the best ability possible? Because ideally we want people to actually learn the language of the Qur'an. But when that isn't the case, unfortunately, for many people and where people may not have the opportunity to do so, you know, what would you recommend and what is the approach that they should take? The use of translations has to be uh, promoted more. Um, I, I don't know what uh, specifically to promote here in terms of uh, translations. Um, there are some that are, that are definitely well-renowned and respected. Uh, the translation of Professor Abdul Halim, for example, he is my PhD supervisor. So naturally, I... I would point out that translation, especially as one that has has a, a flow that you can really appreciate. It is written in English that is that is very readable, um, but it's got very minimal uh, notes and context, uh, you know, provided alongside the translation itself. Uh, there are some that have uh, th- there are some that have a bit more in that regard. Um, the f- professor uh, Ahmed Zaki Hamad has got a translation as well that has a bit more uh, sort of glosses and, and, and you know inserted phrases and things like that that go alongside it um there are there are many translations and and I don't really want to restrict that as, as people sometimes uh they have certain translations that they uh, they just find dear to their heart or they find it easier to read or they appreciate it more um you know I haven't really read Mufti Taqi Usmani's but I'm going to mention it because um you know I heard a number of people say that in terms of accuracy, uh, based on uh, the works of tafsir and also in terms of just getting the, the fiqhi aspects right, you know, these are, these are um, translations written by scholars. Uh, sometimes translations are written uh, by translators, right? So they, they may not understand really what's going on in the, in the works of tafsir. Uh, another time I can tell you about... Uh, some of my, my, my broader thoughts about the, the problems with, uh, with, with translation as an industry, uh, Quran translation as an industry, and how we need to, to move beyond that. I, I do a lot of work on translating tafsir. Um, so I've been translating tafsir al-Razi. We have one volume out, The Great Exegesis, and there will be another volume, inshallah, in a year's time. Uh, you know, working with those materials has exposed me to a lot of... Um, the challenges involved in, 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 in getting it right. And, um, and what's, you know, I have some thoughts about what kind of resource will be much better for people going forward uh, from here. So right now we've got to use the things that we have and inshallah, we keep improving, you know, we keep thinking about how, uh, how the tools can be developed. I'm working on that. I hope others will work on it either to work with me or to work in their own, um, you know their own uh, projects, 
But it is about putting things into people's hands and putting in front of their eyes that will allow them to read the Quran effectively. Right? So translations are a part of that. Uh, but but we, we, need so, we need so much more. And in terms of the, some of the sources that you mentioned for translations, we'll include them in the description box below. Um, and which brings me on to some sort of a linked question is that when people want to really gain the most from the Quran as possible when they don't have the Arabic language, um, many of them will be interested in reading tafsir. Um, of course, there is a tafsir that you have translated of Razi, which will also include in the description box below. Is there, would you say, a good tafsir available in English that would give the ability for a Muslim to actually do that within the month of Ramadan and after the month of Ramadan? That would be sort of a good introductory focus on, you know, the commentary on the Quran. And secondly, you know, quite easy to grasp. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are there are works of of tafsir that are in English, uh, but a fairly limited offering. So we have got the tafsir of Ibn Kathir. Um, I'll speak here about ones that are available in full rather than those which have only parts translated so far. So we have Ibn Kathir, a few different versions of that, uh, abridged and unabridged, I think. Uh, we have uh, Ma'arif al-Qur'an, which is uh, originally an Urdu work, as I understand, and that is available in English. Uh, and people also uh, speak highly about it. I don't have uh, much engagement with it myself. So these are some resources that, that could be used. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, for the most part, you know, uh, during Ramadan, it's, it's, you know, you're unlikely to get through a whole big uh, work of tafsir of this nature. Um, so if you, if you want to focus on the kind of, uh, quantity aspect of getting through the mushaf, then, then a translation is sufficient and, and make some notes, you know, uh, as you come across things that you don't understand, uh, note it down, you know, note down what your question is. And, and find the, the, the means to get those answered. I'm not saying send the question to me. You know, if you do, I will, I will try to help. But um, you know, connect to, to circles of knowledge. Uh, encourage reading practices in your own community. Push your scholars. And I may have been a little bit negative before about the kind of training that scholars have in the Quran. But you know, I, I don't want to over, you know, overstate the problem. You know, in every community, there must be scholars who, who would be fantastic to, to lead the efforts. But again, it's about, you see, uh, I'll tell you honestly, in my own community, people are not banging down my door saying, teach us tafsir, you know. <laughs> so it's, it's a problem in people's imagination of, of, of what they need, right? And, uh, um, and, and again, I don't want to blame the people, but it's about us letting them see what it is that they could have and once they get a taste of it, I'm sure that they will be keen for it, right? Uh, so in a way, I, maybe I'm, I'm not doing my part because I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying the peace and quiet. But once, <laughs> once people figure out how exciting and, and delightful it is to engage with the Qur'an uh, through all these levels of meaning and improve their literacy and understand that you, know, you, you grasp something at the surface level, once you've grasped that, you can you can then dive deeper and deeper. And, and, and we can teach people the kind of questions that you can ask of the text as you're reading, the kind of things that, that allow you to get to very fruitful observations that are impactful and, 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 and spiritually moving. 
you know, then then I'm sure that people that people will um, will, will will direct some of their resources uh, towards this, and and we'll see, inshallah, more people going to study these things in in some depth, and and, and there we've got a bigger problem of, you know, the curriculum of of Quranic studies uh, needs some attention, uh, needs some reform and improvement uh, to bring it more in line with the status of the Quran actually has and that we all agree in principle that it has yeah definitely um and this is something that hopefully we will i mean today we wanted to try and cover as much as possible and we didn't really get to speak about um you know your time at al-ashar your time at soas and you know your experiences in depth with the academic discourse of tafsir as a subject and hopefully um we can get you back onto the uh, podcast as soon as possible uh, to record another episode where we purely focus on you know these t- subjects along with a lot of the maybe evolution that's taken place in maybe codifying and you know because i remember I, I read your thesis no which was great by the way. um and it, yeah of course it was amazing <laughs> and we will also link that too inshallah and in your one of your thesis you were speaking about sort of a historical overview um, or sort of where the development needed to take place, um, whether it was sufficient to sort of see the method of the companions and how they interpreted the Qur'an and maybe how we should take those and so on and so forth. So these are things that sort of, they would require a whole discussion within itself. My pleasure. So I'm really looking yeah. forward to, inshallah, uh, next week, you know, bringing you back into the episode where we just focus on that and discuss on that too. Um, on that note, um, just before we end the episode for today, it would be really good if you could provide some level of advice for Muslims that are struggling with the Qur'an, that have maybe, you know, historically speaking, inherently just taken this idea of recitation by necessity, which isn't always their fault, as we mentioned before. And how could they really bond with the Qur'an as much as possible, but not just confine it to Ramadan, take this relationship and bonding through the advices that you mentioned today, i.e. the translation, the reflection, the understanding, so on and so forth, and take it outside of Ramadan, really enact the Qur'an as a human being, as a Muslim, and most importantly, someone that drinks the guidance that the Qur'an mm. provides. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a huge question, mainly because, as we said, um, it's not to say that the, the means to do that don't exist. They do exist. But it's hard to 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 give a, a one size fits all answer until until we have maybe a system. I could say sign up to this, you know, uh, hopefully free uh, course, and it would uh, and it would resolve it. I think that you know you have to find you have to find the, the means that work for you. Okay, um, you know I do some work with uh, Ustad Noman Ali Khan, who's in the U.S. Bayina Institute. Uh, the reason that I gravitated to to supporting the work that he was doing is because I saw that he was creating that um, that passion in people and and really opening up their imagination to what the Quran provides. And something that I always remind him of uh, when we speak is that you know your your task is not to draw people to your words, but to draw people to Allah's words. And 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 I and I believe he's sincere in that. When he talks about the ayahs of the Quran, he is letting people appreciate. The, he's taking away all the barriers to people grasping what the ayah is saying to them. 
and then when when you come face to face with the ayah of the Quran, then you you know you, you forget about who was talking a few minutes ago, right? That's really the goal, you know. Whether it's Noman, whether it's myself, whether it's anyone else, is not to be uh, a go-between, but to facilitate for people to get to the ayah itself, to get to Allah's words uh, themselves. So, how to do that? It's a process, and we need to cooperate. We need to come together in doing that. Yes, uh, reciting the Quran in Arabic, listening to it, listening to the beautiful recitations, listening to your favorite reciter, all of that is good and will facilitate it. Reading the translation, reading commentaries, and focusing on quality over quantity, right? Especially outside of Ramadan. You know, when you find something that, 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 that you find an impact in it, you find that the Quran is speaking to you, stay there. Stay where you are for a while and, um, and think more on it and ponder more on it. So inshallah, this is, this is maybe the beginning of the answer. I'll try to think more about that. Inshallah. And once again, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure, Dr. Saeed. And we hopefully hope to see you very soon. We spoke about many topics today, um, the reflection. And one of the things that really stood out for me was the idea of consciousness. And we prayed to Allah that we can develop this level of consciousness and we can really fulfill the purpose of the Quran that it aims to, you know, give to us. And, you know, on that note, assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh and hopefully we shall see you soon. Wa alaikum assalamu warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. And just for all of our listeners, um, so many of the references and links that we mentioned, we'll, we'll put them in the description box below. And also, if you check out our Telegram channel, we will upload quite a few content, including the PhD, the thesis that Dr. Sahib wrote, and we will discuss in the next episode, inshallah. Um, so on that note, we shall see you soon, inshallah. And we hope that you all are having, you know, the greatest month of Ramadan and building that relationship with the Quran and reaping its benefits. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.